One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. Each week we look at the deep historic trends behind the big stories of the day. Right now the question on everyone's lips is whether Labour's runaway poll lead will turn into a majority at the next election, perhaps even a big one. Should Keir Starmer achieve a parliamentary majority, he will become only the fourth Labour Party leader in history to do so. So this week we're going to look at the other three Labour winners, Clement Attlee, Harold Wilson and Tony Blair. We want to understand how they won and why, and what that might tell us about Labour's chances this time round. A new parliament must be elected. The choice is between that same Conservative Party, which stands for private enterprise, private profit and private interests, and the Labour Party, which demands that in peace as in war, the interests of the whole people should come before those of a section. Labour puts first things first. Security from war, food, Houses, clothing, employment, leisure and social security for all must come before the claims of the few for more rent, interest and profit. On July the 5th, the shape and design of post-war living is drawn by the Democratic Cross, which is marked on every voting paper. That was uh, Clement Attlee there, perhaps Labour's greatest leader, talking about what he saw as the essential differences between the two parties and what struck me when I was listening to it was the continuity really from then to now he's talking about the many and the few that was tony blair's phrase that was also jeremy corbyn's phrase in 2017 so to some extent things don't change but i also like the way he talked about the tories being the party of private enterprise private profit and private interests while labor was the party in his words of the whole people before a section of the party It reminds me very much, actually, of when the Tory party historically has been at its strongest, when it has stood as the national party over a section of the nation. And this is Labour actually standing in that territory and leading to perhaps its its greatest ever victory. I don't think that is understandable if you don't think about its record during the war from 1940 through to 1945. And then that standing victory in 1945 that changed everything. One of the reasons why what happened in 1945 isn't always that clear is because there is a narrative that Labour's win was a shock. 
And that's an understandable narrative in a way, because Labour had never won a parliamentary majority before. Then it won a landslide. And Winston Churchill was obviously a pretty popular wartime leader, and the vote involved ditching Churchill as Prime Minister. If we don't look at what happened during the war itself and the nature of Churchill's wartime government, we can't really understand why Labour was successful in Mm. that election. What happened in the May 1940 crisis was that the Labour Party in Parliament precipitated the end of Chamberlain's government and pretty much determined the terms on which any successor government could take office, i.e. that Chamberlain started off wanting a, a national coalition but Attlee wasn't going to accept Chamberlain as the Prime Minister. And really, I think the only person that Labour was going to accept was Churchill. Yeah. So they were legitimately claiming credit for the war effort in 1945. I think it was more of a shock, wasn't it, Churchill being voted out internationally than perhaps domestically. I think when you're reading accounts of the 1945 election now, you actually have a sense of Churchill losing his grip quite quickly and saying things about the Labour Party that really didn't hold water or catch the imagination or really it actually put people off. I think he was talking about Labour's welfare state requiring a Stasi to... Gestapo, I think. Was it Gestapo to enforce it? And that was responded to pretty angrily by Attlee, who continued to think of Churchill as the greatest Englishman of all time for the rest of his life. And he'd been a an incredibly loyal deputy through the war. But he responded pretty angrily to that. And I think he dismissed it, if you read John Bew's Citizen Clem book, which is magnificent, he dismisses that idea as the threat of an Austrian economist, because I think it had come out in Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And John talks about that as Attlee being able to play on that kind of latent anti-German sentiment that was still there in the country. So I think that gets at Attlee's character as well, a patriotic figure who was just not seen as a radical by most ordinary people. Attlee had been part of the war cabinet since Churchill took office. He was the deputy Mm. prime minister. And I think, in a way, it's best to think of the national wartime government as Churchill plus Labour rather than the Conservatives plus Labour, because at least until Chamberlain's death, then Chamberlain remained the leader of the Conservative Party, of the majority Conservative Party in Parliament. And if you then look at what those Labour ministers were doing during the war, it was very much focused on the domestic front. And there were a whole set of policy commitments, notably the commitment to full employment in 1944, the Beveridge Report in 1942, that basically were fundamental to Labour's manifesto in 1945. And they'd all been agreed by the wartime government, not the nationalisation part of it. That was the bit that Labour was adding to the policy shift on the domestic front that took place during the course of the war. So Labour was lined up with what was going to happen in post-war politics in terms of the welfare state, in terms of health, in terms of housing. And it was a lot easier political territory, I think, for the Labour Party than it was going to be for the Conservative Party, particularly perhaps one led by Churchill, for whom that was very much secondary stuff to the war and the defence of the empire. Do you think there's an element of continuity as well? Not just that they were aligned with the change that was coming, but actually as Attlee 
refers to in that clip in war as in peace as in war there, there had been nationalization essentially that had been the the essence of the war effort you'd had bevin running the economy you'd had labor in government controlling large sections of the domestic economy atley to some extent being a kind of domestic prime minister i think he's been described as while churchill ran the war effort so there was a continuity as well so it wasn't necessarily seen as a radical change by people who were voting for Labour. They wanted change, and Labour was going to give it to them, but it was also part of something that had already happened. If you were voting for the Conservative Party, you might think you were going back to a world that had disappeared, actually. You're going back to the world pre-war. You mentioned the Beveridge Report. When I was researching my book about Britain's long history with Europe, there's a moment where Churchill is responding to the Beveridge Report and he feels he has to give a speech because the Beveridge Report goes to, I think it goes to every soldier in the British Army abroad and they're reading it and it has this extraordinary cut through and he feels he has to address this and he has to say, I'm on the side of this as well. This isn't a Labour, don't think this is just a Labour thing. This is something that I can get behind. But it's not as comfortable territory for him. He's having to caveat it and say, I back bits of it, but I don't want to go to this place and we shouldn't lose sight of X, Y and Z. Whereas Atlee, of course, this is just comfortable stuff. This is what he wants to deliver for people. I think the the other thing that's true is that the international shifts during the war itself also have important implications for Labour's ability to do this thing. In one sense, if you just think about it as the welfare state, or at least a nascent welfare state. That's part of what Labour wanted to do when it was a minority government in the 1920s. Think about the extension yeah. of unemployment insurance. And then Labour had been brought down in 1931. McDonald's Labour government had been brought down essentially by a sterling crisis around you know, Britain's participation in the, the gold standard, loss of confidence by international investors in sterling as a currency. A recurring theme, yeah. it seems. And Macdonald had broken the Labour cabinet over that, and that was the start of Labour's wilderness years of the 1930s. Post-war international monetary order had already been created during the Second World War itself in 1944 at Bretton Woods. Yeah. And that was going to be much more friendly to the kind of, let's just call it, social democratic politics mm. that Labour had somewhat wanted to do in the 1920s and really wanted to do in the 1940s. So that kind of like threat that Labour would be a source of disorder yeah. was neutralised amongst people who understood the significance of the international change by the fact that international financial conditions were going to be really radically different than they'd been in the 1920s, but also because the war had shown that Labour were a patriotic party yeah. and that they weren't a destabilising factor in British politics in the way which I think that had still lingered at least in the 20s and the uh, 30s. And at the same time, I think that the war in terms of the crisis of appeasement in 1939 and then Chamberlain's fate in 1940 allowed Labour quite effectively to create a narrative which said that party of appeasement was also the party of economic failure and high unemployment in the 1930s of tying the two things yeah they were the, together. they were the guilty men and yeah. that that had become the national narrative it was chamberlain and it was baldwin and of course that was michael foot who would go on 
to lead the Labour Party as well. That recurring theme, don't you, of the sterling and sterling crises and the international financial system would be beneficial to Labour in 1945, but it would not be in the decades to come. But also this ability for the Labour leader to claim to be the patriotic party. That was Labour's core message in 1945. And to have somebody who somehow is able to combine reassurance for Middle England and the ordinary voter that they're not radicals. A quote from Attlee, which I think sums this up, where he's talking about the danger that one silly speech by Nuremberg Bevin could lead to a stampede of votes away from Labour. He was worried about that right until the end, as I think Tony Blair was panicked about Labour majorities right up until confirmation that he'd won in 97. Attlee was able to combine these two things of a reassuring figure and aligning with the zeitgeist and offering change. And I think that kind of sweet spot is when Labour seems to win. I think the other interesting thing, though, about what happened in 1945, because it's not going to be like these other cases that we're going to look at, is that the Liberal Party collapsed in 1945. Mm. And in that sense, what Labour achieved in 1945 was a vindication of the decision that they made really, I would suggest, after the First World War in some sense, to try to replace the Liberal Party as the opposition to the Conservatives and not seek cooperative arrangements. And we're back to that discussion now. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think it's important for where we're going to go next to see this. This was a complete vindication of that decision that Labour had made to say we are going to try to win power by ourselves and we're not going to do it in cooperation with the Liberal Party and that they were able, becoming a party that wasn't feared in anything like the same way, to take those anti-Tory voters who were still voting Liberal and make them Labour voters. Yep. And with that, Helen, we should turn to Labour's next victory from opposition, which happened in 1964 under Harold Wilson. In terms of the scientific revolution, but that revolution cannot become a reality unless we are prepared to make far-reaching changes in economic and social attitudes which permeate our whole system of society. The Britain that is going to be forged in the white heat of this revolution will be no place for restrictive practices or for outdated methods on either side of industry. to Heighton. This is Harold Wilson's own constituency, a safe Labour seat if ever there was one. For James Harold Wilson, 42,000. For this smashing 19,000 majority, my very warm thanks. Harold Wilson is the new Prime Minister. Let every MP who has got in acknowledge his debt to that unsung hero of British politics, the floating voter. They were lovely clips there of Harold Wilson's election victory in 1964, which had ended 13 years of Conservative rule under four different prime ministers, interestingly, Churchill, Anthony Eden, Harold Macmillan, and then Alex Douglas Hume at the end. So there are lots of parallels with today. And indeed, I think Keir Starmer has... I don't know if he's spoken publicly about it, but there's been plenty of coverage that he looks to Wilson as a model for what he might be able to do. Somebody who is focused on winning power and is successful at doing that. 
So I think there are lots of parallels here. There is something about Tories losing the confidence of the public, a economy in crisis over European policy as well, in that the Conservative Party had been rejected in its attempts to get into Europe, and the Labour Party was able to make hay with that because it seemed as though the country was a bit lost. It was lost economically and it was lost in foreign policy terms. We can think about 1964 as an election in which Labour should have done, in a way, a lot better than it did in the sense of it ended up winning a rather small majority that would necessitate um, Labour Wilson going back for another election in 1966. He only had five-seat majority. But at the same time is that when you look at how difficult it is to overturn these large majorities, this is obviously a, a significant breakthrough. There's a really clear parallel with what we've just been talking about, Tom, in terms of like 1945, about mm. how a, a change happened before the election that was very much in Labour's favour. Yeah, yeah. And I think there is again here that if you go back to 1961, 1962, there's a very strong sense within the Conservative government at the top anyway that there's something wrong with the British economy. Mm. That if you compare Britain's growth rate to other West European countries, and actually the one that they were particularly obsessed about then wasn't actually West Germany, it was France. <laughs> uh, in a way, perhaps West Germany was more understandable because it, the, the scale of the recovery from war was... Yeah, was, was still obsessed with the French, still I think. Large, yeah. And that what Macmillan had done was to turn to what might be called state planning. He'd created this National Economic Development Council with the idea that the British economy had to be modernised and that what that meant was that the, the economy would be reformed, including by encouraging technological innovation in ways that would allow the British economy to grow without running into these inflationary problems, moderate inflationary problems by the standards of the 1970s, but enough to mean that there would be periodic sterling crises. So this came to be known as the stop-go cycle. So yeah, the economy yeah. could grow for a while and then it would grind to a halt. And one of the reasons why the Treasury and Macmillan were concerned about inflation was because they thought that the cause of it was an absence of wage restraint mm. in Britain. And again, they, they looked, I think, this time more at West Germany and said, look, they there's more wage restraint in the West German economy. Their exports are more competitive as a consequence. So the Macmillan government began the first incomes policy. It was voluntary, unlike some of the ones that came later. But this, let's call it the politics of economic modernisation with an incomes policy being a central part of that, that really runs through the 60s all the way through to Thatcher in 1979. When she gets rid of it. Absolutely. And I think that we can understand her getting rid of it as part of this story in which this is much more natural Labour political territory because of Labour's relationship with the trade unions than it is for the Conservatives. So what Wilson wants to do is in a way to do what Macmillan's already trying to do yeah, on exactly. speed. Wilson's saying the growth rate that the Conservatives were aiming for was not high enough. He said it needs to be 4%, 5%. And that uh, being the modern forward-looking party that Labour could achieve that in the way in which the Conservatives couldn't. But it's not a real point of departure from what yeah, the Conservatives exactly. are trying to do. They'd he's already just, started He's it. just saying, we're going to do it better because we're more future-orientated than you. <laughs> yeah, it's like boom, bust, 
policy fixation on Germany and France and our terrible growth rate and inflation. It's like nothing ever changes, it seems. I, I was reading Ben Pimlot's biography of Harold Wilson, which uh, it, with like views of, of Atlas is brilliant. And he talks about an idea developing in Britain that it was that we were led by a sort of cadre of untrained amateurs like Macmillan. And you can see that, can't you, that Macmillan had alighted on a policy which himself wasn't really best suited to delivering. So we'll go for a an incomes policy, but we'll do it voluntarily. Then the Labour Party just said, we'll do it. We believe in it. We believe in that stuff. Pimlock talks about Wilson capturing a moment, saying what many young and intelligent people across the spectrum urgently believe. Just as Mrs. Thatcher in the late 70s managed to strike a chord among many normal Labour supporters, so in 1963, with that white heat of technology speech, there were plenty of Tories who found a great deal in Wilson's speech to agree with. And I think this is interesting. Again, you have Wilson. He's more radical than Attlee. Attlee was a socialist, and he was very clear about that. And Wilson had come from the left of the party. He was a, a Eurosceptic, at first at least. But he was a reassuring figure to some extent in that he was patriotic. He would mock the Conservative Party for rolling on their back like a spaniel at the first a hint of encouragement from Paris about getting into the European economic community. He was a pipe-smoking guy who went on holiday to the Sillies. There was something sort of deep England about him, but also he had that Blair quality, I think, of appearing young, dynamic, in tune with what the country needed at that time, which was kind of professionalization to get a grip of the state and to make it work. So I thought about him, like you were saying, there's an element of continuity in that he is saying, okay, what has happened? We're not trying to unpick that. We're just trying to make it work. We're just going to try and get this thing and we're going to try and make it work. And obviously over, over time, that wouldn't work. But that's how I've understood him anyway. The other thing, though, we have to factor in is the state of the Conservative Party at the time. And what was true about Labour in the 1950s was that it had been a very divided party. Mm -hmm. Yeah, much more so than the Conservatives had been in the 50s, with divided between the Bevanites and the Gateskillites. Yeah. Then, after Gateskill died, the Labour had a, a quite bitter leadership election that Wilson had won, perhaps surprisingly. From the left, right? In a way, from the left, yeah. But at the same time, is that however factious Wilson's government would turn out to be, I don't think Labour was a particularly factious party once he initially became leader and through the 64 election. And the same just could not be said about the Conservative Party. No. Because Hume had become leader. He'd had to leave the Lords in order to become leader. And it was really all down to Harold Macmillan's manoeuvring after he'd resigned on health grounds. And there were some very angry people at the top of the Conservative Party. Enoch Powell and Ian McLeod refused to serve in Hume's cabinet and then McLeod wrote this vitriolic piece about yeah. what had happened in terms of Macmillan stitching everything up. He published in the in the Spectator, I think, he basically talks about a magic circle of Etonians. <laughs> Again, does anything ever change? <laughs> and if you then think that the parties are economically trying to do the same thing, one of them is trying to say we're going to modernise Britain. We've taken someone from the Lords to do it. <laughs> and one of them's presenting 
Harold Wilson. I don't think it's really surprising that the, the Labour version of it, in that sense, has got more credence. What is perhaps surprising is that Labour didn't win with a bigger majority. So they only won with a five-seat majority in 64. But we shouldn't really blind ourselves to the achievement of Wilson's achievement then, because he is reversing Harold Macmillan's great victory in 59, when they had a roughly 100-seat majority, and he's got rid of that. And then two years later, after a period of 18 months of young, dynamic rule where nothing much goes wrong, he then wins a, a much bigger majority in 1966 of around 100 seats. So his achievement over this period is really quite remarkable. Obviously, Keir Starmer, you can see why he wants to emulate Harold Wilson in that he would take that at the drop of a hat if he could reverse or get rid of the 80-seat majority that Boris Johnson had won and then two, in two years' time turn it into a 100-seat majority or an 80-seat majority for Labour. Of course he would take that. So I think... That victory, we often overlook it, I think, because of what happens subsequently with very quickly after his 66 victory, the economy runs into trouble, he did devaluation crisis, we were talking about sterling crises before, and he's kicked out in 1970. But at the time, he looked like the transformational figure that perhaps Mrs. Thatcher became. Yeah, I think there is a caveat that has to be put to that on the economic side, which was that the sterling problem reared its head pretty much immediately immediately yeah. the, the Wilson government they were plunged into this internal divisive to some extent debate though I don't think it spilled out so much in public he kept it later. privately didn't yeah, he yeah as say the divisions by 1967 were going to about whether to de- devalue sterling is that this way of running the British economy of on in some sense a more corporatist basis mm. didn't stop go stop no. go ran all the way through the 60s, you could say, stop, go, run all the way. In a way, I would suggest to the ERM crisis in Black Wednesday in 1992. I think it was more a political success in terms of the framing of himself in relation to the Conservative Party and that he was able to exploit the fact that the Conservatives had ditched Hume, moved to Edward Heath, who didn't get off to a good start as the Conservative Party. They were trying to copy Wilson in a way. They yeah. elected their own version of Wilson, modern, yeah. young, dynamic, but all of those things, apparently. I'm not, sure <laughs> I'm not sure either they really were, but is that Wilson's presentation of what the Labour Party was by 66 was a lot more effective than what Heath could do in the relatively short period of time anyway in which he had to do it. Yeah, and on that we should turn to the next, obviously, modern reforming a Labour leader who had won a majority from opposition, and that is Tony Blair in 1997. The Midday News Now, BBC One, with Moira Stewart. Prime Minister has gone to Buckingham Palace to ask the Queen to dissolve Parliament. He is expected to confirm the general election will be held on May the 1st. The Labour leader welcomed the news that after months of speculation, the waiting was almost over. At long last, we're delighted the campaign's underway, and I think the choice will be between a Conservative Party that most people feel has run out of ideas and is out of date, and a new and revitalised Labour Party. I always voted Labour. I'm not so sure what they're up to these days. They seem to be going towards the middle. My mum's always voted Labour. I don't trust any of them, but I have to vote for Labour now. I think the Tories have had it. And as Big Ben strikes 10, the polls close, we can give you the results of our exit poll. There it is, 10 o'clock, and we say Tony Blair is to be Prime Minister and a landslide is likely. When Tony Blair emerged from his North London home into the morning sunshine to head for the palace, 
he was almost swamped by well-wishers. 18 long years, my party has been in opposition. It could only say it could not do. Today, we are charged with the deep responsibility of government. Today, enough of talking. It is time now to do. Thank you. Tony Blair there talking in 1997 on this landslide victory for the Labour Party. The parallels with Wilson are obvious, not necessarily what then happens in government. But this young dynamic figure who had taken the party into a position where it seemed to be aligned with what the country wanted, which I was speaking to Professor John Curtis about this, at the time, there was just an obsession with public services. And Tony Blair, like Wilson and like Attlee, was responding to a changes in the economy that had already happened, I think, and promising a, a, a level of continuity in the economy and then change in public services. Do you think that's roughly right, Helen? Yeah, it's complicated by the fact that what Blair and Gordon Brown probably didn't expect was that the Conservatives' economic record in their last few years in government was actually quite good. If you go back to the longer story that we've been telling about Stop Go, then Stop Go was over by the time of the, the 1997 election. It looked like the British economy could grow without running into inflationary problems and sterling problems. I think there were reasons that were to do with the international economy that's part of the explanation. There'd been a very big stop. Uh, uh, yeah, of uh, uh, that. But what it was possible on the economic front for Labour to do was simultaneously to say, we'll manage the economy more competently. In some sense, we'll be more professional about it. And I think the way in which, for instance, that Brown was planning on making the Bank of England independent was part of that story. But at the same time is that because the economy was growing and because things looked better economically than they had for some time, then Labour wasn't particularly threatening. And Labour clearly was, or the new Labour leadership perhaps we should say, was worried that they might look threatening, hence why they said things like, we'll keep the Conservatives' public expenditure commitments in place for the next two years, I think it was. We won't raise income tax. So those things that you fear that Labour might do, we're not actually going to do them. But because, as you said, we'll do it more competently, they claimed, then we'll be much better at delivering public services. And I think there is something of the, we'll be more committed to the future, going back to the Wilson comparison, when Blair was saying education. Right, yeah. It it was like, this is the way now we're going to modernise the British economy by having more and more young people go to university, by having better schools, for making the British people technologically fit in some sense for the globalised world. I think the the bit that's the complication in the it's all about offering reassurance competence is that Labour was offering something quite radical on the constitution yeah, because of devolution right. in, in particular, but not only that, because as we know, the first... Labour government would go on to be quite radical and constitutional matters. In this respect, the Conservative Party under John Major wasn't able in any way whatsoever to make that a significant election issue. Yeah, yeah. and then he was also radical, or, or he wanted to be more radical constitutionally when it came to Europe, 
and couldn't be and William Hague would make it a electoral question not very successfully in that it, the Tories would suffer a, a second landslide defeat but it did lodge that question in the public's mind the question of joining the single currency but I think with Blair again he was responding to this change in the economy and learning lessons from history as he saw it about the need to reassure England that the Labour Party wouldn't be too radical. He was obviously responding to the lessons that he'd drawn from the defeat in 1992 where he blamed the John Smith proposals to raise taxes as the reason that the Labour Party had lost in 92 but he was also thinking of the Labour Party's record throughout the 80s when it obviously suffered defeat after defeat under Thatcher. I think now you can look at it and say was he responding too much and offering too much reassurance and that actually there was more public appetite for pumping money into public services at the time. I don't know. This is the John Curtis line. It's very hard to know whether that's true or not. The difficulty in trying to think about this and in trying to see in some sense structurally what made Blair's success possible in 97 is to get to grips with the fallout of Black Wednesday. Because what happened in 1992, obviously, was that in, in the April, the election came and yielded that, to many people, surprising Conservative majority. And then by September, the Conservative Party was in utter crisis. It would really remain in one way or another, you could say, until Cameron's victory in 2010. Yeah, you yes, might even yeah. say remain until Today. later, that till Johnson's victory in 2019... Anyway, that it seemed to put a ceiling on how far the Conservatives could go. But that what then emerged on both parties, I think, out of Black Wednesday and the subsequent really siege warfare within the Conservative Party about ratifying the Maastricht Treaty through the House of Commons was that they were basically agreed that there had to be some kind of monetary anti-inflationary framework Mm. for managing the economy and that Britain wasn't going to join the single currency, or at least it wasn't going to be able to join it early on. I think Major and Blair wanted to be pragmatic about the future. I think what's interesting, though, is is that Blair did end up following the template that Major set at the Maastricht Treaty, which was to say, OK, we are going to deal pragmatically with our relationship with the European Union, and if that means opt-outs... of these new integration projects, that's the way it was going to be. On the one hand, the bitter Tory civil war over the European Union was something that Blair could use to hammer the Conservatives and say, look, they're not fit for government. Yeah. But on the other hand, Blair wasn't setting Labour up to do anything that was really very different than the way in which Major had handled the European... And couldn't reverse it, ultimately. It was, as Neil Ferguson talks about, Maastricht being... Brexit one point, that is the seed of the eventual crisis. Yeah, and and when Blair was confronted with treaties, the Amsterdam Treaty and the Nice Treaty in his first term in office, more opt-outs were negotiated. In that sense, I don't think it's like the other cases where something that structurally had gone in Labour's favour had already happened. It was more that there was a consensus that everybody had to be very cautious about the European question. That had the capacity to do tremendous damage to a party that got caught up in the question as the Conservatives had Black Wednesday, Maastricht ratification and Blair steered away from that. And there's a kind of parallel between then 92 
and 66, you had an election just before it all fell apart. The sort of the, the policies that were being pursued, the economic policies that were being pursued fell apart. So Wilson comes in 64 and actually on his first day in office, I think he is presented with the reality of Britain's economic situation and offered the prospect of devaluation and, and then he spends two years fighting it. Nobody quite sees that fight. It hasn't get burst out into the public. In 66, he wins these great majority and then it explodes and he is eventually forced to devalue sterling. And this is a, a great defeat for him. This is his central purpose. He makes it a central purpose of his premiership not to devalue and he's forced to do it and then he loses in 70. And Major obviously has played his part in the removal of Thatcher in large part over this question of ERM and becomes prime minister, wins his majority in 1992, and then it all falls apart in Black Wednesday. So you can't actually avoid an economic mistake. It's going to come back and bite you. And I suppose the parallel then is we have just gone through an economic crisis, a sort of self-induced one, which feels a bit different. But obviously, everyone's asking now whether this is a, a 1997 moment in that it follows a great economic crisis. I suppose we can turn to that after the break. Yeah, just one point before we do, that what's interesting about Wilson's problems after 1967 is that nobody at the time thought they were absolutely fatal. Right. The fact that the Conservatives won in 1970 was still considered at least a moderate surprise. So I think it's there's still a plausible path for Labour winning in 1970 after the 1967 devaluation. I don't think there's any way back from what happens to the Conservatives after Black Wednesday. And I think it's because it ties into the European question through having to ratify the Maastricht Treaty in a way that the devaluation in 1967, it's not that it doesn't have knock-on consequences, I think it does for the East of Suez position, but they're not played out in anything like the same way particularly the divisions within the Labour Party in that period are not played out in the same way in which the divisions that really haunted John Major thereafter. That's interesting. That's similar to James Callaghan later on in that he goes through probably our worst post-war financial crisis and he has to get the bailout from the IMF and impose astonishing levels of austerity in 1976. But he is in a good position to win, at least in 1978, and may well have won if he'd have called the election earlier. So maybe, actually, financial crises aren't necessarily as damaging as they we might now think of. Yeah, I think it's always about the interaction with other questions. And in um, the case of Callaghan, the question of devolution is obviously going to come into it because that is over that, that he's going to lose a vote of confidence. And I think we can talk about this when we, we're on to Keir Starmer. Politics does get more complicated when all these different areas start interacting with each other and I think that's where we are now in the sense of having more things in play that would mm. usually be the case in these elections and in some sense our elections have just been getting more complicated over time If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Vote 2023, the local elections. Let's give you a sense of just how the complexion of the local authorities around England have changed is to look at the share of councillors from each different major party. Look, Labour now, the biggest party. They are up in net terms, up into what might be considered good territory there. So a good night for Sir Keir Starmer, a good election for Sir Keir Starmer. Add it all up, and this is the House of Commons projection showing that if this was kind of extrapolated onto the next general election, you're talking about 298 seats for the Labour Party. That would make them the biggest party in Parliament. You've done an absolutely stunning job here. You blew the doors off. (laughs) Amazing set of results. We're having fantastic results across the country. Plymouth, what a night they've had in Plymouth. And then Stoke. And up to Middlesbrough, all the places that we need to win the battlegrounds. And make no mistake, we are on course for a Labour majority at the next general election. So that was Keir Starmer responding to the local elections earlier this month. The parallels that strike me, Helen, like Wilson and Blair in 64 and 97, there's been a long period of Tory rule. By the time of the next election, there's going to be 14 years of Conservative rule. There will have been five Prime Ministers, a little bit like 64, when I think there were four. This time, Cameron May, Johnson, Truss and Sunak. There's been a financial crisis before 97, Truss's last year. So there are lots of similarities. And I think, perhaps most importantly, there's been a big change in the economy uh, during the pandemic, which the Tories do not look particularly comfortable with. So they are facing this question of what do they do about this bigger state that they have created and are now making even bigger with childcare offerings and old age care offerings. They don't look comfortable with that. They look 
like they want to reverse it to some extent, whereas the Labour Party are actually seem comfortable with this new bigger state and permanently higher taxes. And the other thing is that Keir Starmer, like Wilson and Blair, is not offering revolution. He's not offering revolution on European policy, on foreign policy, and, as I've just said, on economic policy. The political territory that this election is going to be fought over, and indeed where British politics in some sense is now, actually shifted even before the pandemic, and really is part of a change that's happened really across Europe, North America, which is the return of the state to the industrial economy. I think that in some sense, we're living in a post-made in China 2025 world. That was when the Chinese leadership in 2015 made clear what China's ambitions are in terms of the energy transition, high-tech manufacturing dominance of supply chains. And it has brought a response. I think we should see the US Inflation Reduction Act, for instance, that was passed last year is in good part a response. Absolutely, yeah. The emphasis is on what can the state do to accelerate the energy transition and to make economies more nationally secure and nationally resilient. And this is not easy territory for the Conservatives. And then at the same time is the way in which Brexit came about and the fact that it involved assembling a multi-class coalition, part of which was from people in former industrial areas. And then Johnson offering the levelling up agenda, tying that to the energy transition as the way of trying to change economic prospects in those areas. Again, that put much more emphasis on what the state is going to do. So this is not territory that the Conservatives are at all comfortable with. So in that sense, the change again, a change again has occurred that is quite Labour friendly. Yeah. I think the difficulty is the Labour Party is still not entirely comfortable with the Brexit question. Second, that the energy transition is just slightly very difficult. Yeah. And thirdly, that prospects for economic growth generally across the world are not particularly encouraging. So to try to do these things in a context in which there are serious economic problems that aren't confined to Britain. This isn't the 1990s, which was a fairly like optimistic time economically in the world economy. We can't say that we're in those times. Or the 60s and 70s, which we don't think of as an optimistic time. When we were talking about Wilson, and he's talking about 4%, you need to aim higher, 4 and 5%, oh my God, we'd take 2% now, we'd grab that. And this was Truss's argument, wasn't it? We need to get more growth into the economy. But Truss was this figure who quite obviously wasn't comfortable with Johnson's big state agenda. The Conservative Party evidently uncomfortable. Now, as you were talking, it just reminded me of Macmillan in 61 creating the conditions which then the Conservative Party were just not comfortable in at all. And Labour Party were. He said, this is our territory. We can do this. And that reminds me very much of today. I think the thing that strikes me about Starmer, which is a bit different, though, to say, Wilson or Blair, is that he's clearly not like a kind of young, dynamic, modernising figure. That's not his style. That's not what he represents. He's in a way, he's more kind of atleite. He's a calmly reassuring figure. He's not revolutionary in any sense. 
But Attlee did offer change. He offered a change that people were on board with, and it was a kind of a process of what had already happened. I think the question for Starmer, or my question, would be, he gets the reassurance, and the Labour Party gets has put itself in line with the zeitgeist of the moment and the way the economic trends are moving. But I'm not quite sure where that sense of change comes from. If the sweet spot is reassurance and change, I'm not sure they've got the change thing yet. That goes back to the problem of how immensely difficult not only the economic problems that all Western economies, with the possible exception of the United States, face, but also some of the particular problems that Britain faces. If you take you know, the commitment that Starmer's made in recent weeks about house building. Yeah, on the Green Belt. He's yeah, prepared to build on the Green absolutely Belt. Absolutely claiming this as an area where he's saying Labour would do something radically different than what the Conservatives would do. We will get to go back to Blair's language. We'll get something done. We will build houses. Same with energy, green energy. Yeah, but it's not at all clear like how Starmer thinks that the Labour Party will succeed at building houses mm. any more than building houses was supposedly part of David Cameron's agenda. It was certainly supposedly part of Boris Johnson's agenda. And as we know, building on the Green Belt involves reforming the planning laws, yeah. which there have been repeated failures at doing over the last... I guess um, Labour could probably squeeze that through the House of Commons. If they had a majority, it'd probably be less controversial for them. I'm not so sure about that. I think that this goes back to the difficulty of what MPs in regard to their individual constituencies are going to vote for. So it's one thing having a narrative about reform if it's credible that those Mm. reforms can take place. And in a way, I think that Blair did with public services, perhaps with education but it's quite another having a narrative about reform if you can't do anything. So I think that because we live in such more complicated economic times than was the case in the 1990s, that finding credible reform messages is a lot more difficult. Is that so you think that's why we basically don't have them? What strikes me is you have these cycles in post-war British politics where you have a certain theory emerges and then is eventually adopted as what is wrong with the British economy and what is required. So it becomes planning and modernization in the 60s and that is then rejected in the 80s when uh, monetarism and free markets becomes the dominant philosophy. And today, I mean, everyone can see that the economy is in desperate trouble, is not functioning, that Britain needs modernising, whatever that means. But I don't see an ideology from either side that they're clear about that has become dominant or unaccepted. What is the answer to Britain's economic problems? How are we going to solve this? I I don't see an, an obvious solution. I think that it's quite difficult for any... And British politician, regardless in this respect of which political party that they are in, in to, to come up with a, a radically different way of imagining how Britain's going to change economically as a place over the next, the next ten, 10 years. Also, that the bits of globalisation, if we're going to call it that, that are still there, 
which is quite a lot of it, yeah. is going to exist. But the geopolitical competition between the United States and China yeah, yeah. and the consequences of that for everybody else. And in that sense, whilst Blair could think of having a, a new Labour project that was very domestic, all he really had to do like internationally was to go with the flow, so to speak. Yeah, I just don't think that's an option for Starmer just because the world of the 19... 19- 90s was just a lot less geopolitically complicated for Western countries than it is now. And it's doubly complicated for us now, I suppose, because we're outside of the European Union. And can you do this statist sort of rebuilding of a national economy as as an economy the size of Britain's now, when you're into this competition between the United States and China and Europe really trying to figure out where it's going to sit in that competition... It seems difficult. I, I do wonder whether I mean, a lot of people will listen to us talking and say there is one answer to Britain's problems, which, which is to join, rejoin the European Union. And if the answers that are being offered by Starmer now don't work, if he's become prime minister or the Conservative Party, I do wonder whether that will rear its head as a more and more popular electoral option. It might, if nothing else, works. Of the changes that have taken place since Labour was last in power, Brexit is the most complicated of them for Mm. the Labour Party. And it's particularly, I think, complicated for Starmer, given the positions that he took when he was in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet over the second referendum. But it's not at all difficult to see how, in the event of a Labour majority victory, that then runs into the kind of economic problems that is highly likely to because any government will run into them that there will be considerable pressure including within the party to open the european question after all that is the trajectory of the labor story in the 1960s yeah in the sense of what came after the sterling devaluation in the build up to it came the second application made by the wilson government to join the european economic community but the upshot of that was also an extraordinarily divided Labour Party Yeah. over the next, you could argue all the way to the creation of the, the Social Democratic Party but that in was, 1980 and, and the European question was fairly central Yeah. So that, that was ideological wasn't it because that, at the time the Labour Party were genuinely divided on whether it was a good thing to join a supranational institution project it seems to me now that you have the Labour Party very comfortable in the economic terrain of where we are, but very uncomfortable with where Britain finds itself in relation to Europe, and pretty much united in the belief that the decision was wrong to leave. It is, but then once you get into the question of what it might mean to return, yeah, and what it very might, different, what what it might mean for Labour to argue for return what that might do to the prospects for the Scottish Nationalist Party if the EU reopens as a possibility. I think it becomes a much harder subject. Very difficult. On that, we should leave it. I don't think we've come to the conclusion whether Keir Starmer is going to succeed, but we never wanted to. This is a look at the history of the Labour Party, how it wins. And there are lots of parallels to today that I think make interesting listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We enjoyed talking about it. 
Thanks for listening to These Times and to all of you who helped put the show in the top 10 most listened to news podcasts in the UK. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, here comes the usual plea to subscribe, share with your family and friends, leave a review or just please shout about it from the rooftops. If you have any questions, please do get in touch with us. You can email us at thesetimes at unheard.com or tweet us at at thesetimespod, capital T, capital P. And we will try to answer your questions in our next episodes.